I think it's going to open up a world of a multi-chain collaboration and an open network where real competition between these chains will just be solved on chain and there'll be no more arguing about chain maximalism. So I think we're just going to get to see who wins based on movement of assets. That was Kurt Schilling, the pseudonymous founder of RealBirds, a multi-chain NFT collection bringing layer zero to near. Also, the leader of an underground collective fighting for the truth. I really enjoyed this episode because it is the perfect combination between hilarious and very insightful and educational. We cover a wide range of topics starting with Bitcoin and some of the ethos and the early day philosophy that inspired the movement, all the way to mass adoption in Nier, some of the terminology, challenges and opportunities with things such as NFTs and DAOs and then finally we talk about Layer Zero, an innovative protocol that is going to open a ton of opportunity for the entire Nier ecosystem. Overall, I really like RealBirds as a project that has brilliant marketing and is pushing the boundaries of what is possible for Nier projects. I hope you enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with Kurt. Enjoy! Hello friends, welcome back to another episode of the Wild User Interviews podcast with me, AVB. Today, I am thrilled to have with me Kurt Schilling, the pseudonymous founder of RealBirds. RealBirds is an NFT project on Nier with two very important missions. The first one, to uncover the truth. Birds are not real. The second one, to bring layer zero to Nier and enable an omni-chain world. Welcome, Kurt. Thank you for having me. What an introduction. I've been thinking about it all night. <laughs> well, bro, first of all, how have you been? We didn't even get to catch up at all. It's been a minute since we talked. So how's everything going? Yeah, it's good. It's good. It's very busy. It's We've got steak wars going on and yeah, it's a lot happening there. How about yourself? It's been good. It's like the last time... I was in the bear market and it felt like I wasn't busy at all. It was like everything I was doing just came like crashing to an end suddenly. So it's actually good to be busy this time. I think it means you're working on stuff and you're involved in projects that are not disappearing overnight. So knock on wood. That always helps. <laughs> Which, just for reference, what bear market are we referring to? What dates? I was just thinking of 2017 when things just disappeared overnight. It felt like any, any, any friends I had that were in the industry, any projects that I was like communicating with people on just went dark. It's better than that. Yeah, that's rough. I don't want to speak on behalf of the entire New York community, but I'd like to think that if shit hits a fan, we're still going to meet in Lisbon, Portugal and cry together. <laughs> I guess that could be a nice segue into my first question. By the way, I am totally cheating because I wrote like well, a reminder to myself, an outline of the things that I want to make sure that I ask you or talk to you about, but I didn't share it with you. <laughs> so we're going to get your raw unfiltered thoughts. How does that sound? That sounds great. And I think it's hilarious that like you're prepared for such a serious interview and like you took the time to do the deep digging, write down questions, and we're just going to talk about birds being fake robots. So I absolutely love that. There's two problems that I have. The first one is I believe I may be developing a mental health issues just by listening to <laughs> myself so much editing previous podcasts. <laughs> 
And I'm like, oh, no, why did I say that? I forgot to ask about this or about that. But the second one is that I love conspiracy theories. <laughs> if I don't write some streams of consciousness down, we're just going to spend the whole podcast talking about how many things are not real. Yeah, we might have to do that anyway on a different one or just like on a call sometime because I could do the same thing. It's going to happen. We're going to get Michael Kelly on that one. <laughs> Let's jump right in. So, Kurt, I would be really interested to just go back to the beginning, as far back as that may take us. So how did you get into the wonderful world of crypto? You've already mentioned that you are an early adopter and you went through the first bear market. Tell us the story. Oh, I wouldn't say I'm an early adopter of the first bear market, but I got into 2016 and kind of from a mining perspective, I've professionally been mining Bitcoin and that's kind of what I do as a date work with one of the larger mines in the U.S. Got into other coins in 2017, like a lot of other people during the ICO phase and learned some great life lessons and took some years off my life there, just mental health wise, as we talked about before. And then following that, stuck around, like never, ever left the Bitcoin and mining space specifically. And always believed that was going to be a revolutionary innovation for the world and got down the entire rabbit hole of Bitcoin as an asset, Bitcoin as a network, mining specifically as an energy revolution. So I've always been really big on that side. And yeah, after 2017, got pretty into sticking around altcoins and just a thesis that there would be another cycle and learning from people who actually were OGs and went through bear markets in like 2013, 2015 stuff, knowing that this would come back around and the space as a whole would continue to gain people's attention. That led to sticking around for coins and then in 2020 got into NFTs and on the same thesis there, the mental model of this may be like a bubble right now. It may feel like a huge kind of pump and dump or particular situation, but it's not going to completely go away and there'll be some great stuff made from this bubble and a lot of it will fizzle out, but fundamentally it, it could become like another sub asset class of crypto. Went down that rabbit hole a bit and somehow landed on near and near NFTs a little bit late earlier this year, actually. And that was like the cross section of three different narratives. I went down the rabbit hole of layer ones in general and when Ethereum started having crazy fees, like a lot of people did, and that people, a lot of people wanted to be early to NFTs on other chains. So I went down that narrative and meta a little bit and thought it was really cool to, to combine all of them. And that's when I started to look at like Solana NFTs and near NFTs and yeah, ended up here in this little uh, niche echo chamber that we have on near, but I love it. People are just posting their breakfast throughout the whole bear market. Thanks so much for that outline. There's a lot to unpack there. The first one that always draws my curiosity is what came first? Was it like you were looking for a job and there happened to be an opening? So you got started at this Bitcoin mining venture? Or did you have a pre existing interest in Bitcoin and its philosophy? And then you were lucky enough to be able to get a job within the industry? I like the description of it as uh, touch points. Like a lot of people have a couple touch points with Bitcoin before it catches on. Like maybe you heard about it when you were buying a fake ID over the internet. And that was my case in 2013. Like that was the first time I ever heard of it, but that just counted as a touch point. I never looked into it, never did anything. And then 
uh, around 2016 when someone like even just took 30 seconds to to give me their shitty pitch at the time it was like all right a light bulb went off where i just wanted to read just one article or watch one video on my own once you i think make it that far you really never go back get interested and you realize that oh this is that thing i heard about four years earlier and it's still around and it's bigger and more people know about it i had never really heard of it deeply before that and i'd never heard of any of the ethos surrounding it. I hadn't heard of libertarianism. I hadn't really cared about privacy or cared about private property rights or anything like that, or, or sound money or Austrian economics. Right. Right? All of that like came after hearing about Bitcoin for the first time. So that was like the rabbit hole I went down. I really like the framework of Touchpoint for two reasons. It really captures just how reality works. We do need to be exposed to things multiple times. And each time, I guess, it leaves a different mark in our brain and it starts connecting with different neural pathways. But the second one is, I find it really empowering, especially on the marketing side as a content creator, because we can fabricate those touch points. When you look at the product world, I guess we would call like a user journey, user experience. And I've been relatively vocal recently about saying that given all the things happening in the world right now, I don't think we're being very good at creating these touch points. As in, we're missing a lot of opportunities to really convey that narrative. All the things that you've mentioned, libertarianism, sound money, Austrian economics, there's just so many theoretical frameworks and tools out there that could be a good counterweight to some of the forces that seem disruptive at the moment. And I feel there's a lot of frustration, a lot of despair out there, but not many people see Bitcoin as what it started, which was that flag of freedom. Finally, the internet opened the gateway for randoms to get organized and for machines to provide the governance and utopian. I know that we're not there, but it's just fascinating that given the global landscape, we're not getting more adoption. Or I don't know what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, that's a very interesting take. Like I, I think I play double advocate and I'm kind of, Bitcoin has made me, I guess, a combination of like cynical, but hopeful in the same way. Caution, optimism, that phrase, but you could argue touch points don't always need to be positive and good. Oh, check this out. You're going to make a ton of money on it. A lot of people got touch points in the last two years when they saw their bodily autonomy being taken away, or they saw their bank accounts being closed in Canada, or they saw their money hyperinflate in the developing nation. And that's not what you would expect as a touch point for me living in the U.S., but those people all got introduced to Bitcoin in a way where, okay, this is a tool that can help us right now even if it's like demonized in the media or it's volatile it's it's not perfect for exactly what they need it's better than what they had and it's helpful in at least some way the last two years like hopefully people will look back on this and the canada situation was like a really big one and my company helped a lot with trying to like facilitate donations there and another example would be ukraine people trying to cross the border with their life savings we learned a lot we saw some really cool examples on the ground I'm trying to teach people in the moment and stuff like that. Like all these people, those all count as touch points. And maybe they'll look back on that in a year or two years and be like, wow, Bitcoin really helped us there. And what else can it do? Yeah, it could go both ways. There needs to be two sides to the coin, pun intended. <laughs> you have touch points that are outside of your control. 
and they may be unfortunate and you don't want to be that coin maxi guy celebrating some worldwide tragedy on Twitter, even though realistically it can be very good for the movement. In that bucket, I would put all the global issues that you've mentioned and even more, like even the euro collapsing of the last few days, like all these opportunities to talk about Bitcoin and promote it, just keep presenting themselves. What I do feel is that we're not doing as much work in presenting the, the matching argument. Be like, yes, this is why inflation is happening. Hence, Bitcoin is an alternative. This is why you're being pressed in whatever way. This is why your economy is collapsing. Hence, Bitcoin is an alternative. I don't know. I, maybe a more recent example that I see in the Ethereum community, all the early guys made a shit ton of money and I don't know, they either retired or they're just too busy trying to make something that doesn't scale for whatever reason. Opportunity to present the ethos and the ideology seem to have been completely run over either by the ability or the desire to make money or people are just not aware of it. It's one of the things that really drew me to Nier, that the vision and the mission of the future of Web3 and setting that base layer for literally the future of the internet. And they've been cracking at it since 2018, even though they've arguably missed every bull market. That I found really inspiring and I find it really refreshing to be surrounded by people that I don't think, honestly, they're like overly political and maybe not even on my libertarian camp. But at least they do have that deep belief of what the technology is trying to achieve and they're just chipping away at it. You make some great points. Like I, I need to try to not be as cynical. I definitely have a, a huge part of my brain that is Bitcoin maximalist in the sense that it's like Bitcoin focused and cynical about a lot of other things that are going on in the industry. And, and again, like cautiously optimistic that I hope some of them are revolutionary and innovative and that's how i landed on near and layer zero i think those are a couple points that stand out but maybe a point also is just that in the past like 2016 um there was not an abundance of information and stuff that came through both on the publication side and media side it was genuine good stuff that people were learning from whereas now it's there's so much like where do you even send a new person now if you have good sources you're sending them stuff that's like years old and like you go on youtube and it's just that's the epitome of where we're at as an industry it's like thumbnails with like crypto this is going to go 10,000 x so Maybe that's part of it that has to get shaken out in the bear market too, where it's, people don't really understand like what this stuff was made to do or the ethos in the first place from a couple few years ago. We really do need to decouple profits from projects and progress. I saw in Venezuela in 2017, 2018, when I went back there, we had a project there at the time. And my local marketing team arranged for a speaking tour at local universities which I absolutely loved. I got to go present about the technology, meet students. And we were early in the bull cycle at the time. There were two things that really struck me. The first one is most people are just interested in making money. They just don't really see the ideology or don't buy into it. I don't know how much of it would be the local context. Like the politics are so messy. And they've been so stagnant for so long. And it's been such a dead end for so long. They just didn't really buy into anything anymore. But the other thing is that because the economic situation was so bad, people only cared about making money. So it's like, well, yes, I guess that crypto can provide a lot of economic freedoms. Now that I say it out loud, I realize that 
we need to recruit builders that have the right ethos and that the vision and the mission keeps them going. But then we have to understand that everyday users need to be able to use your product and derive a value without really knowing what the ethos or the vision is. That's a good point. It's not to demonize the aspect of crypto that the number goes up. That's fucking great. We all love that. We all want to make money doing this. It's fucking incredible that part of it exists. I think there's, it just gets so leveraged as we're seeing now. And it goes from like something that makes sense to have that number go up technology where like it's scarce and it's, it's desirable and there's demand for it and it has a use case or fundamental value and uh, it truly is revolutionary to, okay, let's take like a tiny piece of that and just leverage it up and make it even more risky, bring it more out on the risk curve. And we obviously see what's happening with that now. And just, it's just always going to end in like a huge unwind that slows down the entire industry for a little bit. Indeed. What I really like about this conversation and trying to find angles for growth and I guess strategies of taking the technology to more people is that when we bring in your project, I think that you're doing something really brilliant. So I guess for a bit of context to people listening, I get more Twitter DMs that I can reply to. And I mentioned Twitter because I've just declared Discord and Telegram bankruptcy. Like it's, it's a disaster out there. But anyway, for whatever reason, and I think that your message may have even come in through the other folder, Twitter thought you were spam. But you know, sometimes I go there when I'm bored or procrastinating. And I would have normally never in my lifetime replied to a bird NFT series. Like I'm just, yeah, I don't really have bandwidth for much these days. But there was something about it that caught my attention. And I'm admittedly too loose in sending my calendar with availability. To my surprise, this Kurt Schilling guy books a meeting and my calendar is my my ruler. I, I wake up every morning. If there's a meeting there, I'll show up most of the time. Just before the meeting, I start doing research. What is this real birds thing? And I got really excited that I took the meeting because I started, actually, I don't think there was much published at the time, but during the meeting, you shared me some of the artwork. And the more that you were telling me about, it really is the two objectives that I mentioned in, in the introduction. It's got a really cool artwork and a story, and it really draws people's imagination with a the conspiracy theory. But then there's a the technological element, which is really the one why I became really excited to support it and to promote it. So I guess that before I hand it over to you to tell us about the project, all I want to say is I feel like this is an excellent example of an opportunity to drive innovation forward, integrating protocols and really creating the core infrastructure to enable others to build, but also creating a really good go-to-market campaign. And it's just catchy. Everyone can talk about it, even if on the technology side. And to be honest, I feel this kind of marketing campaign will give you the presence and the weight required to be taken seriously, to keep pushing your objectives forward. So with that second amazing introduction, <laughs> why don't you tell us more about Real Birds as a project and then Real Birds as we know, they're not actually birds. We know. 
Well, bro, thank you for all the kind words. I really appreciate it. After I was drawn to Nier, something that stood out was just how small the ecosystem in the community was. The fact that I could reach out to someone like you and the other founders who I've talked to in the space and have them respond in a day and actually take the time to even look at what I was sending. I originally come from the Ethereum side and you couldn't get the attention of the best founders on the Ethereum space for NFTs. You couldn't get their opinions. And it genuinely helped the fact that I could. I asked you questions about the project before it even launched and even advice on like art and the website and all of these amazing founders on Nier answered me and provided genuine insight and advice. And that is like just one of the incredible advantages of, of diving in and like really leaning into a, an early L1. And then that kind of brings me to like why Nier in the first place. It kind of just came down to, all right, there was this meta for L1 and amongst all of those, Near stood out as having like incredible trade-offs for scalability and for security. And then you get into the human aspect of it and you realize these ecosystems are clearly standing out amongst other chains that are the same size. People are actually like using these NFTs as their profile project, profile pictures and becoming friends with the other members. And it's exactly what you would want in a potential successful L1 that's going to exist for years to come and grow. So that kind of became a no-brainer for the place to to build this on. And then the fun side of the project, <laughs> there's, it, there's not like an insane story behind it. I love the conspiracy theory. I think it's hilarious. I, I think I originally saw it on like an Instagram ad t-shirt and it was just like a robot pigeon with like wires coming out of its fur. And I'm like upset it took me this long to think that for an NFT because it's perfect for an NFT. And it's great that people can joke about it and get in on it. And we're having so much fun on the meme side of it. So it has the meme ability and like the fun aspect of it. And then that, yeah, then we can get into the tech side why we're trying to do something that's actually like valuable and innovative for the space. The meme ability aspect is definitely there. I'm just on the website now. Who decided, by the way? I did. Dude, congratulations. You're a wizard. I was trying to go with like the first websites you see when early 2000s or like late 90s and they look like they're just like all like U.S. postal websites, like the shittiest government websites ever flickering in the background. And that's basically what we tried to build. It was not in the U.S. or in the internet in the 90s, but I doubt that it looked as good. So for people that are just listening, I would strongly encourage you to go check out the website right now. So we have this exercise <laughs> that I tried for the first time uh, during the last podcast with Magic Powered. I'm going to first describe the website and then I want people to go and check out to see if my description is accurate. So I'll just start by saying that it is amazing. At the very top, you've got the title. It's real birds. Okay, fair enough. The title does look a little bit pixelated. It's like a black background with a bright green words. It looks a little bit rough. Looks like something that a child would have done in PowerPaint. So immediately that it's like, okay, we are kind of like a cool project, but we're not taking ourselves too seriously. Then the background is purple, which I think goes really well with the bright bird. And then like streaming down are all these, it's almost like bytes of code. It's like the quintessential old movie depiction of somebody hacking or like these streams of like text and code coming down and then bang in the middle. You've got an amazing image, which would be a representation of what the NFT series is going to be looking like. You've got this buff bird wearing aviator glasses. 
and it's got what like like a headset cord but instead of it hanging from its ear because it doesn't have an ear for some weird reason the headset cord is going straight into its head but then you think of course because it's not a real bird it's a machine and then it's got a cctv camera on top of its head which just makes it ridiculous because if you wanted the bird to be a spy device you would at least try to hide the camera and it's wearing this like super shady overall coat it's just amazing like there's no words on the project like you don't know what it does so far and it immediately catches your attention and as you start scrolling it's just a mixture of really well-defined short sentences witty statements that they tease you they're like look we both believe that birds are not real and we're all in the joke and we're just pushing for this really cool technology so i'll give you an example the first statement is a flock of 4,185 uniquely customized birds, definitely not artificial spying drones. The first omnichain NFT native to the near particle. See, it's like just the right balance to keep people hooked before you fucking drown them with the technology bit. Because let's be honest, omnichain and layer zero, it's like a whole new world. It's just amazing. Congratulations, Kurt. Yeah, I don't even think you need to buy one now. Like you just come back and listen to this. You basically got the whole thing. <laughs> it's going to be an interesting experiment to see whether the podcast makes people buy more or less. Oh man, it's good. I like the idea of thinking of them as undercover, but so shitty at being undercover. Like we're trying, we're just terrible at it. Like we're trying to hide the fact that we're robots, but we're just not great at it. You know what this reminds me of? This is a really interesting social experiment. And I honestly have no idea what the actual experiment was, but somebody in the crypto world told me, this goes back to 2018, and it tries to capture the way in which people process information and project information and how you can start tweaking with people's preferences and perceptions. So the experiment goes, say I show you a magazine or like a yearbook with a hundred images in it, and I ask you to pick the top three most attractive people there. At that tier, let's call it tier one of the experiment, it's really simple because it's entirely subjective. You simply pick any three people that you think are the most attractive. Easy does it. The second tier gets interesting because you're asked to pick the top three people that you think somebody else will pick as the most attractive. So you have one layer of abstraction there. And I guess that you start introducing elements of regardless of what you may be personally into, you may start generalizing, like what could be general attributes for beauty. And then the third tier, which is the real mindfuck, is you're asked to choose three people that you think somebody else will pick as the top three picks for somebody else. So now you've got three layers of abstraction. And once again, like with each tier, what you're trying to do is trying to deconstruct how a person would reach that decision-making and you realize that technically the same task of choosing which one is the most attractive completely changes based on who you're making the decision for, etc. So I guess that was a very long way to say that that is the beauty of conspiracy theories. It's like a 4D chess game. There are so many interactions going in every direction that Everything is plausible. The more that you look into it, the more that you find out, the more that you find out, the less that you can prove it. And if you're there for long enough, the more crazy people like yourself that you meet. Isn't that like a beautiful win-win? 
It's incredible. You describe it perfectly. And there's, there's, and then there's like the tiny elements of truth in every conspiracy theory. That's what they always say. It starts like a game of telephone. It starts with some level of truth. That's just like a little out of the ordinary against narrative and it snowballs into a huge exaggeration. But when you get down the full path and you're deep in the conspiracy theory, and then you hear the original small piece, small nuggets of truth, you're like, wait, this real, like, where did all this come from? Where did this start from? I think that's a natural consequence of suppressing information. Be like, hey, something happened. We don't want it to get out. It gets out, but it's diluted or altered every time that it passes hands, every time it spreads. That's kind of what make birds are fake, realistic. Like, it's so ridiculous that you're like, yeah, I reckon that somebody would make it look so crazy because they don't want us to believe <laughs> that the theory is real. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I mean, you can go deep enough, like, they think we're so dumb that, like, they'll just make them as real looking as you possibly can. No one will look twice. No one will ever, no one's ever seen a baby pigeon. Okay, I don't want to, I'm not, like, spreading rumors here and just trying to open people's eyes a little bit, ask the questions they don't want you to ask. Have you seen a baby pigeon or not? And everyone you ask in the wider community can tell you a story, which is a fascinating bit about conspiracy theories as well. Everyone inserts themselves as a participant in the story. Like, for instance, I was talking to a friend yesterday. He shall re remain unnamed. And I was like, yeah, I'm really excited because I'm interviewing this guy tomorrow who's doing this project exposing the fakeness of birds. And he's like, what? Oh my God, I'd never thought about it. And then he says, the other day I was having a massive wank and there was this bird standing on my window staring at me. <laughs> exactly. Probably because he put the little block over his webcam. They stopped getting the information they were normally getting and they just had to send in plan B. Like it all makes sense when you think about it. If you block the camera on your computer, we're still going to get you. You can't get away yeah. from us. Yeah. 100%. Tax dollars hard at work here. Of course. What? Can you imagine the poor fucker having to plug all the birds at night to recharge them? <laughs> <laughs> I'm definitely overthinking this one. But the reason why I really like the topic of conspiracy theories is that it's an example of how we are extremely bad at labeling things and communicating things. And there's definitely a parallel, a challenge that we have with the world of crypto. So for instance, we have like traditional conspiracy theories, like the earth is flat or, or birds mm -hmm. are not real. They are usually somewhat segregated from the real world, where I guess the real world could very easily keep going as normal, regardless of whether they're true or not, or whether people know about them or not. But there's something really interesting that has happened in recent times, where basically any theory that is not the mainstream theory is automatically labeled a conspiracy theory. In my opinion, that has just done a great service, a great favor to conspiracy theorists of all kinds. Because if we use that definition, suddenly we're finding out that conspiracy theorists have been right about most things over the last two years, three years. Oh, yeah. So it's kind of like a gaining steam. People are now finding that sense of identity, be like, yeah, I'm a conspiracy theorist and I'm right. Yeah, I mean, the word, like, the word is probably just gaslighting. Like we'll take something that's a queer conspiracy theory and then just label you that when you start to look into something that just is against the narrative and doesn't go with the flow for us, doesn't make things easy for us. And you're right. The last two years have been an inflow of that. I love like the 
I love the nuggets of truth in them though. It's like, it just tests your mental framework a little bit. There's a good quote from a movie, Shutter Island, if you've seen it, it's like, I'll butcher the quote, but basically he's, he's labeled insane. And once you're labeled insane, there's really no defense against being labeled insane because they'll just attribute it to you being insane. Kind of applies to all conspiracy theories. Um, you could make the best points in the world and it's just up oh, your conspiracy theories. Get out of here. I don't think I've seen, that's the one with Leonardo DiCaprio. Yep. I believe I started watching it and fell asleep. <laughs> that shows you my taste in movies. I mean, it also shows my slippiness and <laughs> I honestly don't really watch many movies. I just watch them on planes, which is like for me living in Australia, I do spend a ridiculous amount of time flying. But it's interesting because I feel, I don't want to accuse anyone of plagiarizing, but I feel like Shutter Island may have taken at least inspiration. Maybe they sent some birds to dig this information out because it's a very similar concept to Catch-22. Are you familiar with Catch-22? No, I haven't seen that one. Sir, are you an American citizen? I am, yeah. Oh my God. I have no idea what it's even about. You're going you're gonna, you're gonna to fill me in. You need to do something about the state of education in the United States. No kidding. Yeah, uh, that's yeah well. Catch-22 is an amazing book. I heard about it. I had this habit of adding way too many books to my to-read list on Goodreads. So I just added it. It's like an all-time classic. When I went to New York in 2013, I was walking through Brooklyn. And it was like this, I guess would be like a flea market. And there was a little stand with used books. But they were like, vintage would be an understatement. They were super old and cool. You could smell them from a distance. And I saw it. The Catch-22 was there. It was worn out, printed in the 60s. And I was like, yes, this is my book. So anyway, it's a story. It's post-World War II American war fiction. So basically, Catch-22 is the only way that you can be discharged from serving at an overseas post at a war is if you're injured or insane. But... If you declare yourself insane, means that you're actually not insane. Like you must be sane to have the ability to declare yourself insane. (laughs) And they won't declare you insane because they need you there. So this guy is, oh my God, like everyone around me is actually insane. (laughs) I'm the only sane one and I want to get the fuck out, but I can't get the fuck out because they won't let me. There's just no way they'll let you. So it's a really nice story. It's a cynical depiction of people just following orders and going with things without ever really questioning the larger forces at play. There's just a really rich, it's a really rich cast of characters. There's a classic officer smuggling a bunch of shit and selling stuff to the enemies and the allies. And there's just a bunch of stuff. Like even the prostitutes in the book have personality and like deep meaning. Look, if you get a chance, listen to it. Hopefully there's an audiobook version. I really enjoyed it. It definitely makes you think. I feel like there's some universal That is still up my alley. Yeah, I'm glad you told me about that. That's on the list for sure. If you do get around it, let me know. And if there's a bird watching you while you read, you know what's happening. <laughs> I'll be reading in the dark, flashlight, under the covers, windows, blinds, closed, full security. That's how my friend is jerking off now, so. <laughs> 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 Definitely not me. But the broad generalizations about conspiracy theorists, I feel, I think I was going to make a connection there with all these concepts we have around crypto that are so broad and so vague 
that they also don't really have any meaning. Like, I feel like we have to very proactively push for what we mean. And the downside of not doing so is that we actually get like a really bad perception to the outside world and it may makes it harder for us to onboard people. So I know that you have some views on DAOs and you have some views on roadmaps, which I think are clearly two very overused words and very vague. So why don't you tell me what you think about that? I think you summed them up pretty well there. The fact that they stemmed from like an origin where a piece of them at one point made sense or the rationale behind them made sense. And it'd probably be better to separate the two like roadmaps, I would say derived from being in a insanely hyped up bull market and needing to offer your potential mentors some idea of what you were going to do with the funds. And it snowballed into, there were some good roadmaps, I guess. It's really just a timeline of what you think the project's going to do in a while. And they kind of just snowballed into, okay, you won't have a successful project if you don't have this roadmap. And so that turned into projects doing roadmaps that were just absolute dog shit just to have one because you wouldn't be able to go forward if you didn't have one. And then that turned into like this vast formation thinking of a project can't even be mintable or don't even waste your time researching it because you have a roadmap. And then you like look back at what just happened in that time period. And it's like, all right, 99% of these roadmaps were useless or didn't deliver anyway. And we're basically just like a, looking forward on a year of lies or things that the project wasn't going to do in any capacity. So that was that was roadmaps and then DAOs are different but uh, yeah if you let me jump into the roadmaps before we do DAOs the problem with roadmaps it just highlights that people take everything at face value we have this saying in Venezuela which is horrible and I'm probably not going to translate it very accurately it basically says a stupid person goes out to the street every day and if you catch them they're yours and it just alludes to the fact that people are very gullible People don't really pay attention to the detail. People don't really care about what the outcome is. And yeah, it encourages you to be very cunning and deceptive and go and take advantage of them. It is a saying that maybe highlights everything that can go wrong in a society. And maybe looking at the state of the country, you can start to understand why maybe things haven't worked out for the best. But I feel like it also applies in crypto. Like people doing NFT sales and before it was ICOs, they knew that if they put the right words in the right orders, they could raise money. There were no questions asked about the team, about intentions, about feasibility. There's so many things that are an issue. And I feel like when I read on your white paper that your project does not have a roadmap because you don't want to be bound to anything, but that you do have visioned and you do have, you're open to possibilities to react to what the market throws at you. I could really identify with that because I feel it's both being honest, even if it doesn't match what people would expect, but also because I feel like it, it's more true to its mission. 100%. You nailed it. Really a, an insane amount of similarities between roadmaps and the period of time where ICOs needed white papers and the white papers are somehow you go back and read some white papers, it's probably like the funniest reading you could find on the internet. Like late in the bull market, 2017 white papers are just absolute gibberish. And it's just the exact same thing that 
kind of evolved into uh, roadmaps. Um, and then like, we didn't even talk about the fact that uh, if you view NFTs as like this kind of like beautiful startup style company where, you know, the mint raise is like a sort of fundraising to bootstrap this community or this utility. And it's the first thing you decide to do is lock yourself into a bunch of things you have to deliver on way down the line. It doesn't give you any opportunity to have flexibility or growth or just let the project go where it naturally goes. So that's another aspect of why I started to hate them. Assuming that this project's actually wanted to execute the roadmap, there are issues with having such a structured and fixed roadmap because normal product development, like you do a lot of user research and it's an iterative process and usually you hit one milestone and then reassess to shape up the next one. And it's to be a lot more organic. That was to me another sign that these roadmaps were done without much consideration at all. It's just something to give people the peace of mind that the team is quote unquote working on something so they can justify raising all this money. Anyway, I don't want to keep shitting too much on other projects, but this does lead me to the next point. And this one's going to get spicy because I also have some views and we're actually going through some of these challenges through the marketing DAO and other DAOs that I'm part of. On your white paper, you actually reference Hasu, which is a crypto researcher and his views on DAO leadership. Why don't you tell us about how you relate to those, what he proposes, and maybe even some examples that you've seen of DAOs working or not working as intended. I would definitely appreciate your opinion on these two, if you have a different one. So I try not to make a disgusting blanket statement of all DAOs fall under this, but I think it's similar to roadmaps in the sense that there were some good roadmaps that were delivered on, and it was just like a beautiful timeline of what the executive team of a project decides to do. So similar with DAOs, there are some that are great and are like truly decentralized governance we <laughs> decentralized as well but i don't know but it's uh, there's definitely exceptions basically to what i'm going to say but generally i thought that there were a ton of DAOs that just were DAOs in name only or DAOs for the wrong reason and stemmed from a similar background to roadmaps in the sense that it became like the narrative that you needed one and a lot of people didn't realize like why they were needed in the first place or weren't using them correctly and I think it's pretty unbiased to say that a lot of them were just not functioning the way a DAO should function. And there'd be projects with 10,000 NFT holders. And if you think of NFTs as a company or like a small organization, what style of company or small organization lets every single individual that's involved in that organization vote on crucial matters for the organization when they have absolutely no experience or no understanding or never voted on something before. A lot of DAO members had no idea how to propose votes, how to actually vote on things that were proposed. So that felt like another one that like, when we look back in hindsight in a couple of years, we'll just be, okay, yeah, we were in a bull market, the narrative came, now we need a roadmap and everyone started doing it in the wrong way. With that being said, again, there were some that obviously were great. And I still think that DAOs are different from roadmaps in the sense that they do have some traits that are really beneficial. So uh, the reason I like Hasu's approach to it is because he identifies the good parts of a DAO and incorporates them and takes out all the fluff and all of like the things that just aren't useful for the project. So 
I kind of view NFTs as, I don't even know if people refer to NFTs as decentralized anymore. I don't think they are in any sense, nor should they be. And if you have something like that, that you accept is more of a centralized community and a centrally led organization or company or just a brand, then why would you, why wouldn't you want to centralize like the leadership of it and put the decision making into the hands of people who have experience and who are good at it and who understand the vision of the project instead of just giving a voice and a vote to anyone who heard about it yesterday. It, it seems because you're a fascist. <laughs> yeah, you're right. There's only one vote, actually. It's Kurt. Look, we need to have intellectual honesty, which is the complete, I guess, the other side of the coin would be there's just so much lazy thinking happening in the industry. Some of it out of ignorance, some out of convenience. The way that I see it is very simple. Crypto is amazing as a tool, as an enabler. You can craft systems, you can craft incentives, and in the same way that you can make something really cool that works, you can make something terrible that epically blows up. So we have to be very thoughtful about these designs. DAOs, as a generic word, that every man and the dog have a DAO now, I feel like some people, by omission, feel like, oh, I have a DAO so the work is done. Wrong! <laughs> Setting up an on-chain DAO is just the beginning. Then you start having all the questions and all the challenges that you have alluded to, such as who is making the decisions. Something as simple as, what is the format of a proposal? You know, does it execute on-chain? Does it execute off-chain? If off-chain, who executes? Can you bind somebody else to execute a proposal that passes but has incomplete details? There's just so many possible combinations that are problematic. In that first category of biomission or ignorance, I guess we can learn. And it's up to us to just do the research and share with our peers and communicate with this podcast. But on the second tier, which is the one that I find really troubling, is by just like maliciousness. People that know that through a DAO, they can dilute responsibility. They know that through a DAO, they can avoid be it legal hurdles or they can get more money from themselves or for whatever reason, there's people that thrive in chaos and you don't know or care. Maybe it's actual intent to have the DAO collapse in six months time because who gives a shit? There's $5 million in there. Let's all take as much of the pot as we can, and that's the end of it. And there's many examples of this. You're an NFT project. You raised a million plus. It's in a DAO, quote unquote. You want to watch a tragedy of the commons play out in real terms? You want to recreate Lord of the Flies? Have you seen that one? Have you read the book? Yeah. Not that uncle. I don't know. <laughs> uh, another classic, and for our listeners, Lord of the Flies, this is an amazing movie of, I think it's like British children. They somehow end up on an island with no adults. Usually movies with children are really good because they're able to capture a lot of the basic human psyche and processes and group dynamics in the raw nature. So anyway, highly recommended for everyone listening. My point is you can get the incentives wrong very easily. Uh, I guess the last thing I'll add on that two distinctions are there is a talk war in crypto between like socialism and communism and nobody owns anything and everyone has a say, but it's just going to be a disaster. You can see some of that already. And libertarianism, like you can do whatever you want, 
But when you take ownership of something, you own it. Someone has to be responsible. Someone has to have their reputation on the line. Someone has to display leadership and knowledge. So I guess that was a pretty good way to say that I 100% agree with you. I feel like it is not centralized just because you have well-defined people leading the project because they have the availability of time and it takes a lot of time to run it out properly because they have the knowledge and the skills, the vision, the desire to be there. I feel like the decentralization element may play out at different levels. Yeah. So I think like more thought about that when you mentioned Lord of the Flies, it may have just been about crypto in general and we didn't even know it. It's it's like exactly how crypto projects just eat themselves once they find any form of success. So hilarious to think about it in that way. I think you pointed out like a couple of the good features of DAOs or just like that nature of governance. The fact that you can verify people's ownership, you can like verify transactions, you can propose things more efficiently. I like to think of it as a more of a boardroom of an organization and you can take a web two style boardroom where it's like a bunch of old guys walking into the office to make votes and take the efficiency aspect of that take the transparency of DAOs and the verifiability of DAOs. like those are great features of them but just making it make sense more like okay let's select the people who would contribute to this and know that they have the project's best intentions in mind um, and that's like the perfect marriage. And that's what Hasu talks about of more of yet verifiable that. It, it, there may be some similarities there between like equality of outcome and equality of opportunity. So I agree with you. The things that I really like about DAOs are that they are open. The treasury is public. The transactions are very transparent. There's a lot of tools that I think they greatly enhance traditional corporate governance. And even just aspects like anyone can contribute. It's amazing that anyone can put up a proposal and be paid out of the DAO or contribute to a DAO and even just keep rising until they are counselors or active contributors. That is a dynamism that enables people to cooperate because especially, I guess there's two challenges that I think DAO tries to solve. If you're collaborating with strangers within your country or your region, you would normally set up a company. You set up an LLC and you have to sign contracts. And then if the contract is not fulfilled, then you have to sue them. And how much does a dispute need to be worth for it to be worth suing? The challenges that follow in a digital era is how do you work with anons online that most likely are in different jurisdictions, like publishing companies and running companies internationally and signing contracts internationally and enforcing contracts internationally. It's borderline impossible. So I feel like DAOs are amazing at creating the tools or the core infrastructure to enable strangers to collaborate in a trustworthy way. Just the fact that you can have a shared treasury, that's amazing. That's mind blowing. If you told this to someone 15 years ago, they'd be like, shut the fuck up. <laughs> yeah. If you told it to web people, web two people tomorrow, they'd be like, shut the fuck up. Like the people in more completely centralized systems just don't like that aspect of it. It's a no brainer to include like the good features of it, transparency, the publicness of it. Yeah. hundred percent agree there. And this may be a good time to mention that the Railbirds DAO, or I guess the thing that will be receiving the proceeds from the sale. Is going to have 20% allocated to team advisors, contributors, and the other 80% for 
I don't know, I stopped reading after advisors. So I don't want to put you on the spot, but I'm still technically an advisor to this project. Dude, 100%. Yeah, we need someone to throw under the bus. Amazing. Okay, everyone, <laughs> stop listening. Go buy all of the birds. Ones that have been fully minted, go buy on other networks. Go buy on secondary markets. Buy the shit out of these birds, please. Financial advice. Financial advisor. Love to see it. Definitely not financial advice, but buy them all. Sometimes I think I'm upping my game and sometimes I think I'm going off a cliff, but. I think if you're left right now, you have mental issues. Like we're all together now and we're just going to go through this. We're going to go through this together. But if you're still here and if you're listening to this today, like God help you. That's incredible. You're, you made it through the way. Yeah, you're still listening to this podcast at this stage. <laughs> you're definitely special in whichever way you want to define that. But I love you. So let's keep going. Now, that was a really nice prelude to the real jam, which is multi-chain. So as people aggressively pursue these birds to acquire them all so that I can get some nice advisor fees, <laughs> real birds are not going to be released just near. We have covered so far the conspiracy theories, and I believe like we have warmed up enough and I've woken up enough to start tackling the real meat, the juicy bit, the technical aspects. Because as well disguised as you are behind the funky and funny art, there is some true mind-blowing technical innovation there. So why don't you start by giving us a really quick overview of how the real birds are going to be distributed across chains and then we're going to start peeling the layers of layer zero. Yes, sad again. So we are using layer zero's omni-chain tech stack to, to release the NFT and basically what they built is what I think is the best cross-chain or multi-chain solution. There's a ton of different strategies and that's exactly what they are. They're strategies to achieve the same thing, to get exposure to different chains hopefully within the same project and a lot of them like don't fully accomplish it in that way. So you'll see a project start on Ethereum and then have to release another collection to get quote unquote, a cross chain mint on Solana or something like that. So what layer zero did is basically built an umbrella protocol that is more of a messaging communication protocol that establishes an endpoint with every single chain at once and acts like a spider web on top of all of them and translates messages between them. And what that does to the assets that are existing on top of layer zero is incorporate this tech that like shouldn't even make sense. It, it seems like so obvious when you actually see it done. The assets on top of layer zero can now jump from one chain to the other without even entering a bridge. They can be minted on one chain and then be completely fluid and go over to another chain. And then once they're there, they interact the same way, like any sort of asset that originated on that chain would have. So for a user example, you could mint an NFT on Binance chain and cross it over to Ethereum and using that layer zero cross function. Once it lands on Ethereum, it acts like it was always on Ethereum in the sense that you could verify it as a profile picture on Twitter and get the hexagon kind of feature on Twitter. And that's just like a very visual example of how it lands. And it's like an official NFT on that chain. That's just like one tiny example of what NFTs can do. But 
you start to think of what this can do for the flow of liquidity when you talk about DeFi, if there's a pool that is more beneficial to users on one chain versus another, now that there's complete free flow without the security issues and the fees of bridging, I think it's going to open up a world of a multi-chain collaboration and an open network where real competition between these chains will just be solved on chain and there'll be no more arguing about chain maximalism. So I think we're just going to get to see who wins based on movement of assets. That last bit, a world without arguments, maybe a little bit idealistic, but I definitely, and I'm very bullish about the division whereby if we enable people to move assets between chains, the better ones will win. And I think it's worth clarifying here that it's not just a better chain. It's obviously the applications within chains. I am very active within the near community because I feel like we've got a really good tech stack that keeps getting better and we're not doing enough to communicate it to the world. We have to keep onboarding developers and really just growing as an ecosystem. That leads to my second point. We also need more applications and more use cases in near. There is no winner by default. We really do have to build the use cases. You don't just win by having the best technology. You need to have the best team to promote it and to build on it and to grow the ecosystem. So if anyone wants to sponsor this podcast, I am open to conversations. <laughs> but Kurt, what I really like is that layer zero is potentially a game changer for Nier. We have to map out the market size by connecting to something like layer zero, the Nier potential market size increases exponentially. I'd love to hear how you found out about layer zero initially and I guess what the learning of the onboarding process with them was like and then specifically I'd like to hear about layer zero and near what was the state of affairs before you started working on this venture what have you guys done what are some of the challenges where are we at yeah so you just explained without even saying it directly exactly why near this is important for near because you just look at it agnostically and this technology already exists and we are on the outside looking in as the near community. Like we cannot benefit from this. We can have better applications. We can have better farms. We can have better DeFi tools. We can have great community. And we're just going to be on the outside looking in of this more open network that incorporates all of these other chains. And if you study the open networks always win. I have a meme about that today where it's just it happens over and over again in history. Closed networks are just working on their own thing. Open networks are benefiting from every other participant in the space. And that's what Omnichain is. So someone onboards to Omnichain, whether they're an application or an NFT or a new chain, and the entire ecosystem benefits. And then you look at it through the lens of who has the most to benefit. And that's why we started on here. And it's so obvious when you look at it through this lens, who like, where is the money going to flow? It's clearly a newer chain that has more to offer. Like, we're all in this, like, drastic bear market. We're still zoomed in on near and applications on near because it's clear if you pay attention that, like, we have something special here and we'll basically be able to plug into this open network that is facilitating portals between liquidity of other chains and 
to me, it just looks like it's going to be a direct ramp to this new one, to near to the one that hasn't been incorporated yet, to the one that people haven't checked out yet, to the one with all these applications that haven't gotten the attention they deserve. So I think that's why we stand to gain the most from just onboarding onto this. The value proposition is really clear. And maybe just to reiterate how layer zero works, because it took me a while. You know that the project is legit because you go to the website and like halfway through the landing page, there's like code and crazy shit already. (laughs) But (laughs) if I understood correctly, I think they do something really smart by shifting from transferring the physical asset. So if we think of a normal bridge, say between Near and Ethereum, you have to physically lock the asset on one side and then that bridge issues the asset on the other side. And I think Rainbow Bridge is probably one of the best out there because it's trustless. Well, there have been issues in the past with bridges getting compromised. They may be multi-seek, which is a ticking bomb. What Layer Zero does different is it instead of trying to replicate this transferring of something physically, they transfer the message of the transaction between chains. So I think it's literally like a switch whereby once you transfer the information of the transaction to the other chain, it just flicks the switch and now you can activate or update the state. I'm probably going to stop now because I'm making definitely a fool of myself. But if you're interested in the technology, definitely go check out Layer Zero. The documentation seems pretty hardcore and the community seems active. Kurt would be an amazing person to talk to as well. Kurt, if you don't have anything else to add and don't feel too compelled to correct my silliness, I'm really curious to know how you go from working with a Bitcoin maxi community lol, to discovering Layer Zero. Like how many months were you digging, working with them? And when do you see Nier as an opportunity? Like what has your journey with integrating Nier has looked like for the last few weeks or months? Yeah, to start, I should have prefaced by saying I am not the tech mastermind that can explain layer zero and do it justice. These are like, in my five or six years in crypto, like these are the smartest people I've ever talked to. They are incredible and i would look at everything that they've written look at videos and interviews they've done and i'm like really trying to get a twitter space scheduled with them they're insanely busy but brian and max have been incredible at layer zero and you should definitely check out everything that they've done they can explain it 10 times better than me they have just built something that was once you saw it took a couple minutes to read into it it was very clear that it was the evolution of bridging to me and bridging on its own felt like like the personification of multi-chain as like a theory. And that's one that like even normal people outside of crypto can look at. And it's so painfully obvious. It's like you talk to a normal friend that you have and, and you look through it through their eyes. They're going to think, why are there so many chains? Why are there maxis to different chains? That's ridiculous. Why are there NFTs on different chains? Why are there applications on different chains? Like, why can't they talk to each other in any way? And then bridging got me into the mindset of, all right, that's going to change. And in the next couple of years, people are going to continue building onto that and improving on it. And coming across layer zero was like far and away the best improvement on bridging. You described a little bit of the downsides of bridging. There's tons of security downsides. We saw a Harmony bridge to Bitcoin get hacked for, I think it was like 500 million. I could be making that number up, but that was like a very recent one. There's tons of examples like that. When you're bridging, you're really locking an asset into a bridge contract, which is almost always less secure than like a normal blockchain. 
they just came up with this way that is such a incredibly big brained way of doing it where it's like you said, more messages communicating with endpoints on blockchains, not actually locking the physical asset, quote unquote, into a contract. Yet you would think when you're just doing messages, a real thing, quote unquote, couldn't like land on the other chain. You would think that you would just get a receipt, but they actually did it in a way where the real thing lands there. You can actually verify that because otherwise you wouldn't be able to use it for chain specific features. That's why I think the Ethereum verified profile picture example is really good because you're right. Like you're not actually bridging the asset. You're communicating a message that the asset was sent there on layer zero, just at the high layer zero protocol level. Yet you can use it on Ethereum like it's any other Ethereum NFTs. That's just one zoomed in example of how cool the tech is. That's pretty wild. What has the reception been on the near side? If you can, maybe let's break it down by the near community at large, the developers or like the foundation level. I think it's been really supportive so far. I don't even know if I'm explaining it in a way that the best part of us doing this is that other near projects, whether they're apps or DeFi apps or NFTs, like they directly benefit from this. I think a lot of people say that, but we're really just opening a portal for a ton of new users to directly come on near. And it's very clear to me, like we're their first NFT and like we're nudging them to come to near. We're not going to be their last. They're going to explore other stuff. They're going to explore rec finance. They're going to explore our friends at ASAC and Skelly's and Misfits and I think that the community has been incredibly supportive, both on advice and like somewhat understanding the benefits of this to the entire ecosystem. So yeah, the founders of all these projects have been like, they've become like pretty good friends and really helpful. I love the Oracle concept. I'm just wondering, I don't know if you've heard that allegedly when, or if we eventually discover a time machine. We'll only be able to travel in time from that moment onwards. And I guess that is a really weird analogy to ask. Would there be backwards compatibility? Like once layer zero launches in near, would existing projects be able to tap into it? Or does it have to be built into at the inception of each project? It's nuanced. It's going to depend on how each project is set up. But if you're set up the right way, you 100% can integrate this down the road, even if you're live and launched right now and in like the original way and just a normal near NFT. And I'm happy to connect with and talk with anyone who wants to find out like if their contract is set up the right way to integrate into this. I hope down the road we'll be able to incorporate some sort of onboarding or education or handholding for projects that do want to explore Omnichain. And I think that'll become our value model down the road. Nice. If you can help us explore the near Misfits contract, I'd love to at least know that we have options. Although definitely not a chain maxi, but with a strong near bias, I've got an idea for you. Serious. We get into that stage of the podcast of live brainstorming and afterwards I forget, but I love that people remind me randomly like months <laughs> after the fact. I really love the concept of hands-on onboarding. I think like the most fun that I had as a child was with scavenger hunts. I just loved each challenge and you have to do something physical or put your brain to work and then you get to the next step and there's this group effort as well. I don't know. I loved it. So I'm thinking 
of ways that we could use definitely real birds, but also layer zero as a way to onboard as many people as possible to the near ecosystem, which connects really closely to my belief that once you experience near, it kind of clicks. We yeah. may not have too many applications live now, but something about the user experience and it's cheap and it's fast. What about we create incentives with, I need to double check what sort of infrastructure we have available at the moment, but what about we create incentives with platforms that enable for the staking of NFTs? And yeah, it can be, say, something similar to liquidity mining, but of collections that are from other chains so that we basically encourage people to send their NFTs into near and park it there and they can earn whatever some near Bro, so there. this is a rabbit hole I've been going down because we basically there's a world of possibilities and we now have to decide what we should incorporate what we should let just the users do on their own what we should nudge and incentivize the coolest thing to me about Omnichain for a founder's perspective is I think it's the first time that you can incentivize liquidity and NFT movement and basically the uh, utility in a way, like you just described one example of what you can do with a staked NFT and that could be on near, that could be on AVAX, that could be on Ethereum. If there's a great platform out there that offers higher APY than what you have on your current chain, you are not leaving the project. Like you can take your project from the chain it's currently on. It's still part of the total collection on real birds. And you can go to, you can travel across chains, land on near, land on ABAX, wherever the highest APY is and stake there until the highest APY is somewhere else. And as a founder, like we can incentivize other ways of doing that. Like we can say, okay, there's a ton of people on Solana and Ethereum right now. If X amount of real bird NFTs come to near by this date, you get this unlockable, like you get this metadata change, you get this airdrop. And never before have you been able to truly incentivize the, the kind of like nature of where the NFT stands right now. I think that's going to be pretty huge for moving liquidity around and moving adoption. I'm going to say it here publicly so that we have the record available for other members of the community. If you guys come up with a plan to do some sort of onboarding in the way that I've described, especially if it's outside of the real birds collection, because I guess that obviously you have full control of the real birds collection and I guess it'd be easier to do with the Dow treasury funds. But these are the kind of proposals that we would be willing to entertain and support where possible for the marketing Dow. So we've got a soft cap of 10,000 USD, which is a lot for creative and resourceful people. We basically go by how much value when we create. Does this get us closer to onboarding a billion people to the near ecosystem? And we approve. Um, anything above that, there are other mechanisms, be it a fast grant or the traditional grant system. Have you guys received any near grants up until now? No, we applied and the team there has been really friendly and helpful, but I think just with the bear market, they've slowed down a ton, but they've been really great at communicating with us and we just haven't heard back a specific answer yet, but we're definitely interested. The cool thing is we're not really reliant on a grant or a mint raise or anything like that. Layer Zero has just been very collaborative to work with for free. All of our devs are on salary from projects that we've worked with together for for 
years now. Our core team is two great friends of mine who work in the industry full-time. We're all just doing this because it seems so innovative and fun and we love it. We're having a great time, but really funding would go to incentivizing the kind of insane amount of development that needs to occur because this is, I'm not a dev, like this is hard stuff that they're doing. They describe it to me. It's like in the trenches development. So that's why it's taking so long to integrate this endpoint into Nier from a layered zero perspective. And then devs for projects, this is just a very new space. So like they're really experimenting and making mistakes and it's taking longer than usual, but that's really the extent of where any funding would go. And for now we have that, a grant would be very cool and helpful, but we're pushing on regardless. I love it. I think that's the right mindset to be honest. And I wish that more people had it. And I guess I'll restate it to make sure that I got the right message and to make sure that I'm not defaming you. I love that if there is no immediate financial need and you're really passionate and you believe in your work, there are some compromises that can be done short term, some sacrifices, acknowledging the market conditions, acknowledging some constraints on the near foundation side. And I think there may be other restructuring issues and just following up on previous grants, I feel like. During the bonanza days, a bunch of people got money and they never delivered shit. So I love that there is enough flexibility in the team that honestly, it also serves to highlight just a commitment to the course. Be like, hey, I've got enough food <laughs> and a roof over my head. I know that this is going to open unlimited growth once it's implemented. It works for now and let's stay in touch. And yeah, I think that it may not be ideal in, in some circumstances, but I feel like it's really good to see that you guys are still shipping because it's it, everything is cyclical. Like this is the kind of work that is going to get us out of the bear market and into the bull market. So even though the funding does cut back during the bear market, because it's just the reality of the market, we do need people to keep hustling and pushing along, which is why... We've also been uh, much considerate with the uh, funds allocation to the marketing DAO. We're really pressing people, especially projects that we funded for several months. We're trying to graduate them into like other funding avenues or just like, encourage them to become sustainable through revenue or just like having conversations. But a key focus for us would be to try to bring on new projects and really enable opportunity for as many people as possible and onboarding new users. I understand that everyone in the ecosystem has a role and I really admire the big brains shipping the code. I'd like to think that in their mind, they rely on me and people on my end of the community to do the work, to get the message out there and to onboard the users. So I guess that the implicit understanding there is heads down code. Thank you, sir. We really need it and acknowledge your work we'll do our end on the other side, just to make sure that there are new users and that there are, that the interest is sustained over time. Said, with that being said about us being pretty much self-sustaining with funding, there, the reason like we're all so passionate about it is because there is just undeniable upside once you start to understand truly how innovating Omnichain is and being a first mover in that. There's not much competition out there and there's not many people who are who it's clicking for that this is going to be a meta, whether it's in the bear market, in the bull market, the time will come where people are going to realize that this is a game changing technology. And I've seen 
a couple of them in crypto that stand out. I truly believe this is on par with DeFi as a meta, NFTs in general, bridging as a meta. Omnichain is like the next level of that. While I can say we're like very self-sustaining and happy to do this without a grant or anything like that, there's insane upside for this in the future. And being a first mover, there's tons we can do for like infrastructure side of Omnichain NFTs to help other projects do the Omnichain route to help applications get started, to build more user-friendly software for it, to build applications that, that make it seamless and feel smooth. It's at that stage now where it's not smooth yet. So you just think of it like that. It's going to get smooth eventually, and we can be the people to kind of facilitate that and help move that along. So if that comes with a ton, a ton of upside. Would it be right to say that something like this Omnichain solution is core infrastructure in the sense that in the future, it will be the application layer leveraging it, as in maybe the user himself or herself is not doing the interaction, but you can, as an application, automatically engage with other ecosystem to provide your user the best experience. So I'm thinking something like, uh, off the top of my head, an NFT marketplace that essentially aggregates liquidity across mm -hmm. blockchains. So technically, let's call it open AVB on Ethereum, where there's a lot of cashed up people, they could display assets from near, whether whatever, 50% premium. And if a sale is executed on Ethereum, then through Omnichain, I pull the asset in kind of thing. Do you see that level of abstraction coming in the near future? <laughs> yeah, like not in the near future, but in the future, 100%, like avoiding the pun. But it's when you see the APY aggregators that like take data across chains and show you like, just for the staking example, okay, you're, you can earn X amount on all these different places. Basically picture the evolution of that. Some huge brains development wise can probably build this on layer zero where it automates that to actually happen. Instead of just seeing it as an APY being shared, the asset that you're having sit there can just automatically move around to whatever chain is the most profitable for staking, land there, sit there. When another chain or another application comes onto the market that beats it, automatically switch and go to that one and like truly land on the chain and enter the application. That's how revolutionary I think that could be. And that's just on the DeFi side. Like I love thinking about the creativity aspect for NFTs and what this can do for like communities and moving around people's incentive models and the game theory behind it. So I really hope people understand like just how much can be built on this and it very much feels the open network vibe of when I originally started to learn about Bitcoin, like something that really made it click was how these are like just monetary networks and like Visa and MasterCard are operating on their closed monetary networks and they're just actively shutting themselves out from the open monetary network that's being built on Bitcoin and Lightning. They just will lose over time because open networks win over time because they have the added benefit of everyone in the ecosystem just helping each other, whether they know it or not, because they're just in the open network and it's all open source and collaborative by nature. And that's what I think we're dealing with here and another level of that. It's super interesting. I was planning on wrapping it up, but you've opened a kind of worms. I'm trying to go up with a specific example, but a trend that I have noticed, a challenge, a problem, a hurdle that we have to overcome for Web3 is that 
even though open networks win and aggregation theory and network effects are always correct in the long term, I've seen instances of people trying to basically replicate Web 2 models in Web 3. And by that, I mean them inserting themselves as the middleman, even though it's Web 3. And when you have that kind of setup, it actually undermines the whole network theory in the first place. I guess I'll just leave it out there as a broad statement because I can't think of any examples, but is anything like, does that resonate? Does that make sense? I may just cut that out. No, it actually does. And like, I think, I don't know if this is what you were thinking of, but like it, it hits home because we've been trying to think about what our value will be in the future. And like, I, as you can tell, like I'm so into the open source aspect and in that model, like fees trend to zero, middlemen trend to zero, uh, like hand. So when I just, when I said earlier that like one of our values could be onboarding people to Omnichain, it's like part of my brain understands that that isn't sustainable and like that we're also not needed. I love the aspect that we're not needed. The technology exists and you can go out there as a project and research how to get yourself involved in Omnichain, how to make the switch. You don't need us. Our value down the road could be like very optional. It could be, we don't have to monetize it and it could just be nurturing projects that are interested in it more from an education model. So it's really, it really resonates with open source. It's feeling very similar to that. I didn't mean you or we do have to be intermediaries and we have to monetize because property is expensive in Australia. <laughs> <laughs> There's a good onboarding period, right? That'll be necessary for a while. Same with open source development and teaching people things. Yeah. Yeah. A little bit of both can exist. This is a perfect segue because one thing that I wanted to make sure that we cover before I let you go, I'm mindful of the time, is open source. So admittedly, I don't actually read that many white papers or follow every NFT project out there. But one thing that really jumped at me, yes, I can hear you now. How's it going? All right. Technology. Sorry. It's all good. It actually sounds better now. <laughs> I got the old school wired Apple headphones. Oh, dude, those are great. Those are I got to switch back to these fuck AirPods. I actually want to get those because the wireless headphones that I use, JBL, are terrible for handset speaking. And yeah, the, the corded one is just better when I go for a walk, especially if there's a lot of wind. But yeah, it's just before technology started sabotaging us, they sent the birds to fuck us up. Yeah. One crash play that, I went offline. I just want to say that one thing that really struck out at me when I was reading the Real Birds White Paper, which is just a blog post on Medium, a very approachable, but recommend everyone to read it. I'll link on the show notes. Was it you guys mentioned specifically that Real Birds is a CCO project? CCO stands for Creative Commons Zero. I'd love to hear maybe if you could give us an overview of what that entails and why real birds uh, operates that way or they've chosen that path as far as copyright goes it's part of it actually ties in nicely to what we were talking about right before with the which is like the open source ethos and like the collaborative nature of open networks part of a couple of projects that like really inspired this one was cryptodes on eth which is i think one of the earlier cc0 uh projects and basically it just means creative commons zero which translates to 
you will not sue anyone for using your creative licensing or your likeness. So the polar opposite of what some of these projects, like not to call out, but like Bored Apes and a lot of these other projects that would like just go after individuals or companies that use their likeness or did derivatives or did merch or things like that. And I thought Cryptodes did like a great job of portraying that's the absolute opposite ethos that we're trying to build here where open source is like, take what I've done and make it better and make it cooler and make it different and build on it. And then the next person will build on that. And that's keeps the whole ball turning long-term and makes it more innovative when you look years down the road. So it's just not assuming at any point we'll have this huge likeness to monetize, but it's setting us up just ethos wise that we completely incentivize people to take what we're doing and spin it and make derivatives and yeah, you just won't be punished for basically like following the open source model. So that's what that represents. I like that you guys are really explicit and mindful about it because it's actually really sad to see that there are many areas of progress that are actually held back. Not even because there may be legitimate copyright claims or patent claims, just like legal bureaucracy, but because it is unclear what the path is working in that area or with that content may represent too much of a risk or the parties involved. So I really love that this Creative Commons Zero category has been created. Creative Commons is an organization, so they basically aim to make it really easy for anyone to come up with these policies in a simple to understand and clear way. So they've got those predefined categories, there's Creative Commons Zero, there's Public Domain Mark, among others. And yeah, I just think it's great that they enable scientists, educators, artists, and all sorts of creators to just put their work out there in the public domain, make it really clear that there will be no legal ramifications or risks of dealing with the work and actually encouraging people to build on top. As you say, I feel like crypto have done an amazing job at showing us just how fast the technology can advance if we basically open the hood, enable people to explore and experiment, and then just build the next feature on top and the next feature on top. Once again, you can always definitely identify who are the bright minds playing with the technology to push it forward. And there's always some leeches there that are just forking for some quick profit. Anyone remember Bonnie Swap? <laughs> yep. Have you seen any other NFT projects doing something similar with the copyright? Like being so, clear and upfront about it? Yeah, Cryptodes was like a really big one. They started a little initiative and a couple others did it after. They're probably the biggest and still probably like my favorite NFT project ever. I, I like that there's been so many derivatives of them. Like it really incentivizes people to build and to ship and not worry about and take a good thing and make it better. It's like the perfect model for what we're trying to do here as a whole in this ecosystem. So I think that's another thing. I've tried to combine a bunch of things into real birds that I think are just going to look so obvious in hindsight in five years, when you look back at what was the right way to do things in crypto in general. And that's basically, that was top of mind. It was just like an, it was an obvious one. It's like to make the choice on the other side of that is to be like pretty greedy and short sighted. So that's kind of the inspiration behind that and the roadmap and the DAO thesis. A lot of these are in the same mindset of just like encouraging the right way to do crypto in general. I'm going to be devil's advocate here. Are there any behaviors 
that would piss you off, even though technically the collection is on the Creative Commons Zero? It's a unique situation. If a company does a derivative and say they make like, they're 10 times more successful than you, they make a hundred times more money. It's pure capitalism and free markets. I love the fact that it is just ruthless Darwinism that, okay, they did it better. The market has said they've done it better. So if someone does it better, then so be it. I would be pissed about us just being shitty at it, but I would have no one to blame but myself. And I think that's like the only way to approach it. But that is still being idealistic. What if they don't do it better, but because they are lying, mischievous cunts, they're still more successful? What if they start claiming that they are the original team and this is just a second release from the original team? What if attribution? What if they are known scammers taking your artwork? Are there any risks or anything that you would look out for and step up and be like, hey, please do not, I guess, destroy all the work that we've done with this kind of behavior? Yeah, those are definitely risks. If a giant Ethereum project just took absolutely everything we were doing and stole it, then <laughs> there wouldn't be a huge defense for that. But the people that we've talked to would know that we're doing first and would know that we were doing it first. And it also wouldn't kill what we were doing. It would just be an unfortunate situation of an asshole taking complete advantage of us doing it in the right way. But again, it comes down to the free market situation like at that point then we're just in neutral competition with a company that has like copied us and is now starting at square one without even knowing what they've built whereas like we we actually built it so i would feel pretty confident in us from that point forward delivering and doing it better just because it's actually ours and we know what we're doing that makes sense you know that the free markets also need like fair and free distribution of information this is why I love having people such as yourself to tell your story and represent, yeah, and communicate what the project stands for so that even if somebody else comes along to contribute to the collection, you will always be reminded as that initial driving force. And now they know who to contact, even to collaborate. I would say like Cryptodes did a good job of that too, where you think of CCO and open source projects of not having a point of contact, but they would like actively it's like devil's advocate to devil's advocate. They would act, they would actively promote derivatives and they would promote companies that were copying what they were doing in good faith, knowing that they were CC zero. And in that mindset, you grow together. And that's just like the ripple effects of an open network, again, working in CCO model. I was just asking, cause I feel like we came full circle and in the same way that we identify the problems that DAOs are trying to solve and the benefits that it presents. There's definitely setups where it can be counterintuitive. So I was just wondering whether the CCO model would be a similar scenario, but I guess that most would fall under the common sense category. Sir, as we approach the end, I cannot let you go without discussing here publicly. Let's make it exciting. White lists for our listeners. So. Can you give us a quick update of when can these amazing cheeky, definitely not on real birds are going to be up for sale? And can we come up with some funky criteria for whitelists or do you have anything in mind to give something special or, to people listening? Yeah. yeah. If you're talking about like your listeners or misfits, all the above, I want you guys to have complete access. Like I really want to do it in a way where no one gets where no one feels like they didn't have a whitelist spot because they didn't grind or they didn't have the right project or something like that. So trying to give a ton away on our Twitter directly to people that are interested and trying to collaborate with friends and projects. So 
a hundred percent let's give some away let's give as many as you need away there's not a fucking insane demand for minting projects right now so i just want people who are actually interested in what we're building and if, if we have a lot of those then i'm more than happy we could do something fun like pictures of birds or bird memes or anything you can think of under the sun we're open for that is amazing awesome the what we'll post the updated guidelines we've got about two weeks from recording so we'll iron out the details and definitely both definitely misfits on the podcast there's probably a few similarities there like not many people know this but when misfits launched there really wasn't much happening on the nft space on near we definitely identified the pfp madness and other ecosystems as big drivers for community and i guess looking backwards it is easy to see that the theory was correct Misfits, Near Nodes, Near Meerkats, we're very early there. And we're really happy to have attracted even some communities from Solana that have really taken over that aspect. But it was very hard to launch during those days. Like even our collection of only 1,123, there were like questions on whether we were going to sell out. We had some absolute rock stars like Sasha from the Human Guild. I think he bought over 50 Misfits. And he personally distribute them to the builders in the ecosystem. So I know how it feels to launch when there is not much there to receive you. And in hindsight, and I hope that this is really encouraging to the team, I think it's actually better. You may find that the people that end up owning a real bird are real OGs. They may be less interested in the flipping. Hopefully through this podcast and through all the work that your team is doing in communicating, the amazing technological improvement they'll be wanting to just support the project to see this go ahead and let's get some white lists going once the initial shitty couple weeks of knowing that you're in a bear market and like everything just being one giant red candle once that's over for two weeks it if you're sticking around anyway and you, you don't need liquid funds for real life stuff like food or apartment or things like that it just becomes like building season like i know people meme about it but we are like completely fine with building through a bear market and not having insane hype or demand for the mint and all of the above this is something that clearly i feel like is a multi-year project anyway even just to start to unlock and scrape the service of what we can do on the omnichain side so we are, we're excited. I like building in a bear market is just great. Like you're surrounded by only the brains who truly care about the space are left. Even right now, it'd get worse for another couple months, but even right now, like we are only surrounded on Twitter by the people who we know are going to be here when nears in a bull market. So this is the company we want to surround ourselves with and get started with. And it's been absolutely great. I could not have said it better myself. I agree. It may be a bear market price-wise, but I'm looking at all the activity and the competition happening. And uh, yeah, there's a lot coming to main it soon. So much to be excited. Sir Kurt, I'm mindful of your time. I'm going to start wrapping it up. There's, you've mentioned a few sources that I may DM you just to get the links. Is there anything else that you'd like to mention before we start, before I let you go? I think it's just important for people to go outside, take pictures of birds. Bird watching goes both ways. If it flies, it spies and just keep fighting the good fight. Tell a friend tomorrow that birds aren't real. Get them asking the questions. It's more important than any technology, any amount of money. We need to expose the truth here. So 
I'll end with that. Amazing. Thanks so much, Kurt. All right, bro. Love you. Talk to you soon. That's the end of another episode. As always, I just want to thank you for listening because, well, let's be honest, you are amazing. And I also want to remind everyone that everything contained in this episode is for entertainment and educational purposes only. Nothing on this podcast shall be construed as financial, medical, or any other type of advice. And you should always consult with licensed professionals before making any financial decisions. Make sure that you like and subscribe so that you stay up to date with the latest episode. We've got a steamy hot pipeline of guests that will keep you entertained right through the bear market. Stay safe out there and I'll see you soon. Bye.